Let's open up our Bibles together to Romans chapter 8 as we continue through this glorious epistle. And we are, friends, at the mountain peak of glory. Uh, It doesn't get more glorious than the things that we see in this chapter, the things that our brother Paul has to tell us about this great salvation. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. So that has us at verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this good and pure and perfect gift that by your spirit working through your word, we have been brought from death to life, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, our blind eyes given sight. By this same Spirit working through your word, you are transforming us into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning that through your Spirit, by your word, you would accomplish all of your good purposes in us and through us this morning. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word this morning, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a story I remember my dad telling that I heard many, many times growing up in his sermons. Unlike most of dad's stories and most of what my father says, this is actually a true story. (laughs) I'm just kidding, dad, if you're listening to this at some point. March 11th, 1898, a teenager, Peter Dineka began a long journey, sailing from his home country of Russia, traveling to Nova Scotia. For him, this was literally the other side of the world. He would eventually become a great evangelist, used greatly by the Lord, but God was going to teach him on this journey a lesson that he would never forget. But for this trip, his family had saved for months and months and months to purchase his ticket. It literally cost him everything that he had. There was nothing left over. There wasn't even money for food, and so Peter's mother had had packed enough food for the long trip, mostly bread and garlic. That's what he would eat, black bread and garlic on this trip. Every meal, every day, they couldn't afford anything else. And so every day on this ship, on this journey, he would look through the windows into this beautifully appointed dining room at all the wealthy people eating lavish meals, and he would sit and wish that that was him, and he would look at them just wishing he could be in there with him, and then he'd return to his room and eat his black bread and garlic, all alone in his room. Well, about halfway through the voyage, the sailors noticed that he did this every mealtime, staring in the windows, just dreaming that that could be him, and they they made him an offer he just couldn't refuse. They said, if you do some of our work for us, some of these chores that we really don't like doing, then we'll sneak you some food out of the back of the kitchen as payment, and you'll be able to eat something 
a little better than what you're eating. And so Peter jumped at the chance for this opportunity. He worked so hard for them every day, all day, doing the jobs that none of them wanted to do. And they would give him some food out of the back of the kitchen. And he thought he had a pretty good deal going until the last day of the voyage. It's on the last day of this long trip that Peter discovers a truth that he had not previously been aware of, and that is this, included in the price of his ticket was all the food he wanted to eat in that dining room. In this lavish dining room where he had been looking through the window, watching and dreaming and wishing it could be him, he actually belonged in there with everyone else because his ticket was an all-inclusive ticket. He'd been tricked into doing all that extra work for lesser food than what actually belonged to him because he didn't understand what it was that was rightfully his, what it was that belonged to him with the price of his ticket. Well, the Apostle Paul has been doing some of that eye-opening for us as we have traveled into this eighth chapter of Romans. What are the privileges that are included in the free gift of salvation? Because most of us don't comprehend the riches that we have received. We don't comprehend what it is that God has given to us. We, we don't understand how comprehensive, how all-inclusive this gift of salvation is, that we have been chosen, as we saw last week, by God from eternity past, that all who have been chosen by him have been called, and all who have been called have been justified, and those whom he has justified, he has glorified. That is all, all of it, from the calling to the glorification, it is all included in that ticket. It's ours. It's eternally comprehensive and unchangeable. But today, so many are insecure in their faith. Many of us, if we've been honest with ourselves, have struggled with insecurity. We've been led to believe that we could lose our ticket and somehow be thrown off the ship for it. Somehow mid-voyage, we're going to just be hoisted overboard. We've been tricked into believing that somehow we need to work our way into the dining room of God's lavish grace. Yet as Paul shows us in chapter 8, there is great security for the believer in this comprehensive salvation. What an incredible paragraph this is that we're looking at together. This has been called the, the hymn of assurance, the song of triumph, the highest plateau of the whole of divine revelation. James Montgomery Boyce calls this paragraph the highest peak in the highest Himalayan, Himalayan range of Scripture. So as we come to verse 31 and the glories that we saw last week in this pronouncement that, that Paul has made, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then we come to verse 31, and it's like Paul inhales real deep and exclaims, what shall we say to these things? In other words, what are, what are we to think in the light of these things? What are we to, to do in the light of these things? Well, what are the these things Paul's talking about? Certainly, it's what we just said, what we saw last week. God's predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying. 
But Paul's pointing to even more. What we have reached right now is the climax of this whole letter. It's everything Paul has said up to this point. This is the peak of his logic. This is the peak of his gospel. Everything has been building to this moment. In in chapters 1 and 2, as we see the corruption, the depravity, the condemnation of man, how he is fully without excuse, how, how man is locked up in this jail cell at the bottom of this pit of rebellion and corruption and condemnation. In chapter 3, that sinful man can't comprehend, in fact, doesn't even desire the gospel. We don't desire freedom. Chapter 4, how God is not impressed with our bloodlines, with our religious lineage and our outward actions. Chapter 5, as we saw the origin and, and inescapability of man's sinful nature, that we are born into this, that we are born corrupt. In chapter 6, the enslavement of all of mankind to sin instead of to God, how we're, how we're cemented in our solidarity with Adam in condemnation and death. And in chapter 7, how there is this conflict, even in the believer, between the spirit and indwelling sin that's constantly waging war within us. And then as we come to chapter 8 and we've seen the initiating, life-giving, electing, calling, redeeming God who, who has moved on our behalf to bring us out of the hopelessness and the groaning and the despair that we were living in and to bring us into the light and life of God. Paul looks at all of that and says, what? Shall we say to these things? Well, the first thing he says is, because God has delivered you, there is no one who can destroy you. Look at verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a big overarching response. What do we say in the light of all of these things, in the light of our corruption and our unworthiness and God's acting on our behalf to bring us to himself and in light of him lavishing on us a salvation that is incomprehensible? What do we say in light of that? Well, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. He's not actually asking the question as if he's waiting for us to be like, well... Let me have some time to come up with a list. No, the clear it's a declaration that Paul's making. The believer's salvation cannot be destroyed. There's no one who can stand against us if God is for us. Now, do we doubt sometimes? Yes. Are we discouraged at times? Absolutely. Do we feel defeated at some points? Definitely. But our salvation, our our security, our standing in grace, our relationship with God, our position as his children, our acceptance with him cannot be destroyed. If God is for us, who can be against us? As we've seen before in the book of Romans, this word for, if God is for us, who can be against us? This Greek word could also be translated as since in its most literal sense. This, This little Greek particle doesn't just refer to a possibility. It refers to a true condition. It refers to a reality. So really, we could read this as, since God is for us. Because God is for us, who could be against us? In other words, Paul is saying, because of the fact, because of the reality that God is for us, Because this God is with us, there could never be another greater power that could destroy us. 
because it's true. The God is for me because I'm in Christ. No greater power could possibly destroy me. John MacArthur says the obvious implication is that if anyone were able to rob us of our salvation, they would have to be greater than God himself. Since he is both the giver and the sustainer of salvation, who then could conceivably take our salvation away? So what Paul is saying to the believer as he, as he looks at us in light of all this and says, what should we say in the light of all of this? As he looks at the struggling believer, he looks at you, Christian, if you struggle in the assurance of your faith. And he says, is anyone stronger than God? And the answer is a resounding no. No one is stronger than God. And so if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Can someone come and take my salvation from me? Well, most of the people who who are receiving Paul's letter initially to the Romans were Jewish. They, They knew well the Judaizing heresy that we saw when we studied the book of Galatians. The Judaizers were these legalistic Jews who claimed to be Christians and they said to the Gentiles, yes, you can, you can come into the faith here, but you got to come through the door of Judaism. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe some of our Jewish traditions. You need to adhere to the Mosaic law. What they wanted to do for these Gentiles was take away their security of salvation by insisting on some kind of external adherence to a law. Here's the list of hoops you got to jump through, the list of things you got to do, and then we can consider you part of the family of faith. Well, friends, things aren't that different today. There are Protestant denominations, the Church of Christ is one of them, that want to add to the work of God by requiring works from men, saying, in the case of the Church of Christ, it's, it's saying that baptism is required for you to be a Christian. In our community, we're surrounded with another group, the Amish, right? They want to add to the work of the cross by adding this work, being Amish. That's the work. You got to be Amish like us if you want to receive salvation. They would even say it's presumptuous, arrogant to have assurance of salvation. Well, the Roman Catholic Church does everything it can to undermine assurance of salvation, teaching that certain sins, so-called mortal sins, will remove salvation from you as if every single sin isn't fatal. Now, here's our list of the big ones. As if any rebellion against God is somehow not disastrous. Roman Catholic Church also claims to have the power and authority to both give, to dispense, and revoke God's grace to those who either keep or break their traditions. Well, what is all of this? It's blasphemous. That's what it is. It's blasphemous to add on to the cross of Christ. Paul says in order to do that, you'd have to be stronger than God. You'd have to be greater than God to do that. Because it's God who initiated salvation. It's God who has accomplished salvation. It is God who has promised to preserve the believer. Jesus himself says in John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus says here, of his people, I give to them eternal life 
they will never perish. How much more clear could he be? If you have received eternal life, when will you perish? So audience participation portion. Never. They will never perish. This word perish literally means, the, the word is apolumai, it means they will never be lost. That's what Jesus says. If I have given you eternal life, you will never be lost. And then Jesus says this. Here's why. I hold you in my hand. And no one is able to snatch you out. And if that wasn't enough for us, he says, the Father holds you in his hand and no one is able to snatch you out. In other words, whoever's capable of taking your salvation away, Christian, would have to be greater than God. And since no one is greater than God, no one is able to take it away. You cannot get more secure than that. But, but maybe we're thinking maybe God would take my salvation away. Fine. I, somebody can't come take it from me. Some religious tradition can't, can't tell me it's being revoked. But maybe God would take it away. Well, what would it mean if he did? Uh, for one thing, it would mean Jesus is a liar, according to what we just read. That, by the way, is a big deal. It's not something we want to accuse him of. I give to them eternal life. They will never perish unless I take it away. No, what would it mean? For God to take away our salvation would mean that promise of Jesus failed. God had failed. For the triune God who, who chose us, called us, redeemed us, immersed us into Christ's life, uniting us to him, imputing to us the spotless righteousness of Christ, sealing us with his own spirit, for that God to decide to cast us out would require a great failure on his part. A failure to complete the work that he had begun in us. A failure to keep his word by preserving and glorifying us for heaven. That's, that's Paul's argument in the very next verse here in Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For, for, for a child of God to be given up by God would require not only a failure within the Godhead, but disunity within the Godhead. The, the son would need to change the father's eternal will. The father would have to get the spirit to unseal us. He would have to get the son to stop interceding on our behalf. The eternal purpose of the triune Godhead was to, to send the son the Lord Jesus Christ, to sacrifice himself in our place that he might reconcile to God the Father Almighty a chosen people to do that while we were still God's enemies. And then after that work of Christ was completed, that the Spirit would continue indwelling and sealing the believer. This was the plan of the triune Godhead from eternity past for you, Christian. So then, for the Father to reject even one of his people would bring great disunity within the triune Godhead. And that has never happened, and that will never happen. But, but could a Christian lose their salvation by committing a terrible sin? There are many who believe and teach this, of course. But, but the person or the church that, that holds, upholds this belief, 
doesn't understand the depth of our rebellion and depravity in the first place. The things that Paul said in the early chapters of Romans about how wicked we were, about how how much we did not desire God, about how we shook our fist in his face and rejected his call, about our spiritual inability to save ourselves in the first place. It doesn't understand the calling of the Father to true believers, the initiating, redeeming work of Christ, independent of good works on the part of a man. At the very beginning of this kind of thinking is that we sort of deserve it in the first place so we can do something to make us undeserving. That's not the gospel. We don't deserve it. We can't get more undeserving. That's the gospel. MacArthur again says, Since you were not saved by your own power or effort to free yourself from sin, to bring yourself to God, to make yourself his child, God has done all of that. How then could it be that by your own efforts you could nullify the work of grace that God himself has accomplished? You cannot nullify the work of God's grace. But can a Christian choose to return the gift of salvation? Jesus said, I hold you in my hand and no one can snatch you out. The Father holds you in his hand and no one can snatch you out. But surely we can jump, right? That's what I grew up believing, being taught. Many of you as well. That we can just return the gift of salvation the way we might return a Christmas sweater that's ugly and we don't like it. We could just take it back? Are we really able to leap out of Jesus' hands and and out of the hands of God the Father Almighty too? Many teach that we most certainly can, but the first question I would ask you is, are you stronger than God? Good answer. (laughs) Listen, when Jesus said, no one can snatch the Christian out of his hand, and then for good measure adds in, or the Father's hand for that matter, do you think you're the exception to that? Somehow you're so strong. You're so strong that you can snatch yourself out of his hand. Maybe Jesus was just playing games when he said that. He didn't mean it. More than that, how is it that you think you came to God? Was it your idea? Was it your initiative? Or do we love God because he first loved us? Well, of course, that's what the scripture tells us, isn't it? We love God because he first loved us. God initiated. We came to God because he came to us first. So this argument that we can somehow trade in our salvation, that we can somehow leap out of God's hand, it starts with the wrong person. Those who make this argument are forgetting how it is that they were saved in the first place. How it is that a a person comes to Christ Any so-called Christian who wants to trade in their salvation never had salvation to begin with. No one who has ever received this gift from the Lord wants to be done with it, wants to walk away from it. Anyone who doesn't want it proves that they never had it. They are, as Jesus described, a seed that seemed to take root. It appeared to have life for a little bit, but then died away because they never had genuine saving faith to begin with. Now, that doesn't mean a Christian can't backslide. 
You all know that a Christian can backslide, just like I do. It's possible for Christians to disobey, even deny the Lord temporarily. The disciples did it. But the individual who says that they were once a Christian, but is now blissfully united to the world. I have deconstructed my faith. I have walked away from all of that. Who are just living in willful, blissful rebellion and sin. That person was never united to Christ. They were never hidden in him. They were never united to him. Paul writes about people like that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me, he says to Timothy. Demas is an example of this. He, he, he appeared to be in Christ. But in the final analysis, it became clear that Demas' true love was never Jesus. It was the world. He loved the world. He only appeared to, that that seed only appeared to be taking root, but it never had. A a person does not experience a release of guilt from sin and its condemnation and then decide that they want it all back. I'd like to have the weight of that on me again. I'd like to climb back down into that pit and all the filth that's there and wallow around. A person doesn't hunger and thirst after God and then altogether lose their appetite. They don't live in the light of heaven and then desire the darkness of hell. They don't experience true fellowship with the saints, the singing of the praises of God, and then despise the church of the living God. Not if they've ever truly experienced it. They might have been around it. They don't walk with him, trust in him, depend on him, and then decide they never needed him in the first place. That never, ever, ever happens. Ever. So what do we make of the person who appears to have had that happen? We could probably all name someone who appears. They they appeared to have been walking with the Lord. They appeared to enjoy the fellowship of the saints. They were bearing some fruit. And now we look at their lives and they are living in complete abject rebellion. What do we make of that? Well, the Apostle John tells us exactly what's going on with them in 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. That's what John says. John says their lives have proved that they were never really with us. They were never really in the faith. They just looked like it for a time. That's how we understand what is going on. Our lives bear witness to our salvation. But we're not talking about once saved, always saved. People ask me that sometimes. Do you believe once saved, always saved? And I say, no, I believe in the perseverance of the saints. Jesus saves a person. He rips them out of that solidarity in sin and death and condemnation in Adam. He unites them to himself with new hearts, new minds, new wills, new desires, a new object of worship, and they are transformed eternally and they live like it. That's what we believe. We don't believe you walk an aisle, pray a repeat after me prayer, do a bunch of heroin, murder a young family, and then you still go to heaven because you prayed a prayer and once saved, always saved. That was my uh, college professor's example of what people who believe you don't lose your salvation believe. And it's nonsense. We don't believe that at all. We believe that when Jesus saves a person, he saves them. He transforms them. They are new. 
people. They are his people. And so for the true believer, Paul declares, no one can destroy what God has done. No one. No church, no person, no tradition, not even the Christian himself. And God will certainly not nullify what he's done. Eternal life is, and this may sound crazy, eternal life is eternal. That's what Paul tells us, verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If the Son of God was given up in your place, God the Father will give you all things. It's Paul's promise, Christian. The, the triune God, Christian, has designed every last detail of your redemption. It was his plan for you from eternity Past and there is no one big enough to stop him. And he didn't, in the last minute, just take his hands off the wheel and say, you take it from here, buddy. He loves you too much to do that because you're a bonehead and you'd mess it up. Just like I am. There isn't anyone strong enough to overpower God, to overcome his plans. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Secondly, then Paul says, because God has acquitted you, there's no one to indict you. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Satan is called in Revelation 12, the accuser of the brothers. The accuser of the brethren is how most of us learn that expression. We see this picture in, in Job chapter 1, those that were in the adult Sunday school. We talked about Job this morning. We see this, this picture of Satan accusing Job before God. And Paul is using this legal language here. The image is a, is a courtroom scene. Satan is the prosecuting attorney, just like we see in Job, listing the charges against us before God. And Paul says, who shall bring any charge? Literally, that, that, that expression means to be arraigned before a judge, to be hauled into court to face charges. And here's the truth, Christian, the charges are real. Satan doesn't have to make up things about you. You know that full well. There's no need to manufacture accusations. We are all worthy by our deeds and our hearts of condemnation. But what does Paul say here? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Again, it's a rhetorical question from Paul. The answer is, no one. No one can bring any charge. Absolutely no one can bring any charge whatsoever against God's elect, against God's chosen, redeemed people. Why is that? Well, it's because of what he says in the second half of the verse. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. It's God who takes rebels and makes them his own. It's God who takes sinners and transforms them into saints. It's, it's God who imputes to us the righteousness of Christ himself. And Paul is saying to us, if the court of God has already justified you, then no one can bring any charges against you. In other words, if God has done this for you, Christian, if God has canceled your debt, then you have been fully pardoned and no charge against you has any power anymore. Is that not glorious? 
Like we don't, have to, we don't have to work our way around to say why the accusations against us aren't true. We just have to say, and they have no power over me. I'm worse. I'm worse than you're saying I am. And when God the Father Almighty looks at me, he sees the spotless righteousness of his Son. There's no higher power to appeal to. It's God who justifies. There's no higher court. There's no challenge to this ruling. It is God Almighty himself who has justified you, Christian. His verdict will never be reversed. The case against you is closed for eternity. Is that good news? Finally then, because Jesus Christ has redeemed you, there isn't anyone who can condemn you. Look at verse 34. Who's to condemn? Right? So, so no one can bring a charge against you, and then Paul just brings it to the logical conclusion. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There's only one who could possibly condemn you. Jesus Christ has been given final judgment by the Father. He tells us that in John chapter 5, verse 22. He says, not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. It's Christ alone who could judge you. It's Christ alone who could condemn you. The, the Son will be the one who condemns the unbelieving world. But Christian, what's his posture towards you? What does Paul say? Who's to condemn us? Well, the answer is, Jesus would be the only one who could. This is what Paul says his posture towards us is. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's that courtroom language again. We've been brought up on charges by the enemy before the court of God. This court that has already pronounced us innocent, but if that's not enough, our attorney standing for us is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what we sang in the words of that great hymn this morning. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, perfect plea. Oh, what good news that is. The only one who could judge you, Christian, is actually interceding for you on your behalf. The only one with authority to condemn you died for you. The only one with authority to eternally denounce you has called you by name, has delivered you, has made you eternally his own. What shall we say to these things? Brothers and sisters, if God is for us, who could be against us? Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for this glorious gospel. Lord, we undeserving sinners, unworthy of the gift of your salvation, you have lavished your grace upon us. You have showered us with kindness undeserved. Even giving to us such assurance of salvation. I pray, Lord, you would cause us to live our lives in light of these truths, to live lives of confident boldness as your sons and daughters. Lord, humble boldness that it never forgets that we are undeserving of this grace. Thankful boldness that never 
forgets what a gift it is that you have given to us, but Lord, the boldness that says we belong to you who could stand against us. Lord, in this dark world, we want to bring the light of your gospel. We want to bring it with love and with boldness and with courage, and we pray, God, that you would make us faithful to that end. Lord, settle in our hearts these truths and implications of your gospel. Let us believe your promises to us. And I do pray, Lord, that you would make us increasingly faithful. Those whom you have saved, you have also sanctified. You are transforming us into the likeness of Christ. And so I pray that you would do that by your spirit. And I pray, especially for those in this room that don't know you. Perhaps, Lord, they have listened to the words of this sermon and it has caused them to become even more confident of a salvation they don't actually possess. May it never be. I pray, Lord, by your spirit right now, you would point your finger at their heart. Cause them to see the desperateness of their condition. Cause them to see the hopelessness of trusting in their own goodness. Cause them to see the despair of living for their sin and not bowing the knee to the lordship of Christ. And I pray, Lord, in this moment, you would call their name. Call them to yourself. Give to them the gift of repentance. Give to them the gift of saving faith. Cause them to run to the cross of Christ and to despair their sin. Lord, thank you for your work in us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the joy that comes in knowing that we've been made your sons and daughters by faith. That your spirit dwells within us. Pray, God, that you would Cause us to be your joyful, faithful ambassadors in this world and bear much fruit for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.